Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us today at the intersection of politics, policy, culture, economics, and business. This episode's topic, influence. I am pleased to be joined once again by my colleagues, Johnny Fluger, Barron's Chief Strategist, and Jeremy Furchcott, Director. I wanna recognize both of their important contributions to the way that our firm understands, measures, and acts on influence, and in particular, our influencer analytics methodology that Jeremy has pioneered uh, and brought it to where it is today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's terrific to be here. Great to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Washington, D.C. is consumed by influence, giving the appearance of influence, establishing influence, and yet very few people have a clear understanding of how to reliably identify and engage those who are influential. And one of the most common mistakes that occurs in Washington is to conflate prominence and influence, and particularly in a social media-driven world, scale and quantity is mistaken for the quality and the endurance of impact. And so our task is to figure out and to separate prominence from influence, to understand who is influential, with whom, when, and how to measure that consistently and reliably. So one of the questions that consumes Washington, D.C., both folks in the private sector as well as not-for-profits with their issue advocacy groups, foundations, and others, is how do you detect, how do you measure, how do you determine influence, and how do you engage those who are truly influential? And Jeremy, I'd like to begin with you as someone who's been instrumental to our understanding of influencer and the development of influencer analytics. How do you think of the definition of influence and why is that important to overcoming one of the central challenges to effective education and advocacy? So I'll start by describing some of the shortcomings of what is out there. There are all sorts of lists out there. And what we've seen in our work is if you take a look at any of these lists, several of the people on the lists seem to be helpful for whatever we're trying to work on, but many of them are not the right fit. And it became clear to us that the reason is that there is no such thing as influence in general. Influence really depends on the subject matter, depends on who you're trying to influence. Someone could be very influential on one topic, but not influential on another topic. Someone could be influential with one group of people, but not influential with another group of people. And it became clear to us that we needed a more sophisticated way of thinking about influence. I would add to that, Jeremy, that the political system frequently is a lagging indicator economists speak of leading indicators and lagging indicators. And we've seen time and again that trends are bubbling up beneath the surface of political activity, be they in business, in the academy, in the the sociology of American life. And the political system, until very late, does not appreciate that things have changed and new influencers have emerged on a particular topic. If you had polled Washingtonians five years ago as to who influences antitrust policy. Very few would have identified the incipient hipster antitrust movement, including Lena Khan, who's now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Many people would have identified a longer tenured consensus group of members of the antitrust bar, including former FTC and DOJ officials but they would not have honed in necessarily on the fact that a new generation of people 
was about to reshape thinking on antitrust. And I think one reason we developed uh, influencer analytics led by Jeremy is to address this gap that occurs. We see over and over again, the consensus in a particular topic being rewritten and the opinion codifying class in DC does not always realize what's going on and is taken by surprise. And Johnny, I think one way to restate this idea is that influence is dynamic. It changes over time. And it's challenging to think about those changes. On the one hand, we live in a media-driven society and people can become very focused on short-term events. But just because all of a sudden people are talking about one particular person or topic, it doesn't mean that there's true influence. It could be that something just went viral one day. Um, you know, there are these internet memes that go around and then that are forgotten a week later. So things change. On the other hand, uh, you don't want to be too distracted by the day-to-day -day changes that you see in the headlines. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how, how to sort through the dynamic nature of influence, how to think about reasonable timelines for influence. There's also a lot of peacocking in, in Washington, if I can use that verb, which is to say that a lot of people in our industry and adjacent industries are seeking to position themselves as influential for reasons of esteem, glamour, and also, you know, business, financial, remunerative success. And part of the challenge is understanding to what extent is a perception of influence by a particular individual on a political debate contrived uh, on the basis of very limited short-term interventions by that individual or institution in, in a conversation. And to what extent does that entity's influence reflect a real receptivity and connection by and with an audience? I think we should cover early in this discussion the notion that when someone has a point of view, a principle, a position, a proposal, and they want that point of view to gain currency in the policy conversation, that they're really entering a objective marketplace of ideas. They show up in front of decision makers. They present their argument alongside other arguments. And then those arguments are adjudicated and the most meritorious argument prevails. And that's sort of a very mechanistic, almost scientific process. But we know from lots of experience, it's not actually the way that the policy consensus is forged. And Johnny, why don't you walk through why that mechanistic framing is so misleading and so inaccurate? I think that there are great discrepancies in credibility between different participants in a conversation. And those discrepancies play out in diffuse ways over time where credibility means different things to different audiences, to, to different opinion leaders. In one case, credibility can mean a credential from an elite university or, or graduate school. If you're working on a question of administrative law, having a JD from Harvard or Yale can position you 
very well in, in a debate. In other areas, in other conversations, being part of an ideological movement or the ideological movement associated with the decision maker can be even more important. If you are a progressive interlocutor with a progressive leader of a federal agency, that gives you standing that you would not have by virtue of being a technocratic former management consultant with, with elite credentials. So I think a lot of the rub, Jonathan, is in the credibility of the participant in the, the conversation. And there's also another facet of credibility. Not only do participants have this question of credibility, the debates themselves are dogged by questions of credibility. One of, I think, the great misconceptions that people who are otherwise sophisticated about business matters uh, have is that with the right access in Washington, you can get anything done. You can have the most ridiculous, absurd, inane uh, argument. And if you know the right person in the, in the White House, if, if your friend went, you know, went to uh, Syracuse University with President Biden and was in the fraternity, in a fraternity with him, you can get your, your initiative um, enacted, put, in, you know, put into force. And our work has shown time and again that's not true. The, the argument that you are working toward, the, the policy objective that you are working toward, has to be credible in the political environment. It has to draw on the trends that are already swirling around public policy and, and uh, political life and social life in, in society. You can't just concoct it out of, out of ether. And so there's a question of the, the credibility of the participant in the debate and a question of the credibility of the argument. And the interplay between those two leads to all sorts of interesting outcomes that cannot be reduced on the basis of pure mechanistic logic. And Johnny, to that point, it'd be useful, I think, to provide our perspective on lobbying and when interests typically pursue lobbying and when lobbying occurs relative to the overall policy forging timeline. Lobbying is a lagging indicator. Usually, lobbyists are engaged by an entity, be it an issue advocacy group, a trade association, a nonprofit, or a business, after there has been some sort of development that necessitates an intervention with government regulators. If everything is going fine and dandy, there's no need for lobbying. If there's no press scrutiny of a particular industry, then there's no need for lobbying. If if members of Congress or regulators have not looked at that press scrutiny, there's no need for lobbying. Usually lobbying occurs when certain trends have begun to play out, but they have not played out fully. And the person on the hiring end of the lobbying decision understands intuitively that what's to come can be shaped but usually it's already been shaped to a certain degree. Only some percentage of the consensus around an issue is now plastic or pliable or, or movable. 
Jeremy, given the challenge of shaping a policy consensus, as you developed an approach, how do you think about influence and how do you measure it reliably? The first step is to understand the signals that are out there. What do the signals mean? We live in a very risk-averse political environment in D.C. People are often very cautious about what they say publicly. And that means that for most people, when they do say something publicly, there's been a lot of thought put into that. In particular, when people mention someone else, another person or another organization, they're comfortable doing so, they're doing so thoughtfully. And usually it's because they want to tie themselves to the credibility that someone else has. And so what we realized was that by tracking at a larger scale how people associate themselves to other people who they perceive to be credible, we could determine how the political environment thinks about credibility, who the political environment thinks is credible. For example, if someone were observing my LinkedIn activity and realized that um, I was commenting on and liking a lot of Jonathan Barron's posts, they would realize that Jeremy is comfortable publicly associating himself with Jonathan Barron or anybody else I might be uh, interacting with on LinkedIn if, if I did so deliberately and thoughtfully. So Jeremy, you're making a very important point, which is when an individual in the political arena, and that's to include policy experts as well as other figures, when they publicly reference someone, because of the system and its characteristics, that public reference is an important signal. Yes, I would go a step further, and I would say that when many experts and leaders are all associating themselves with one particular figure, that is almost never coincidental. We have gathered over 100,000 of these kinds of associations, which we call citations or reference points. And through qualitative analysis, it always becomes clear that the people who are cited most frequently by a broad group of people, and we can talk more about the quantitative methodology, but the people who are cited most frequently are cited frequently for a reason. So Jeremy, your point is that when someone in the political system publicly references another individual, that has significance beyond what most people appreciate. Yes, that's the building block of understanding influence in DC. So any interest or faction operating in Washington, DC really has several problems that consistently arise. One is not only is it a really big country, but it's a very big, complicated system that we have in Washington that produces a policy consensus. So the first question is, how do you manageably engage a, a subset of the system? Otherwise, the system is too big and it can't be effectively engaged. So first, understand what's an efficient mechanism to advancing a position of a given faction? The second problem is, once you figure out the rough subset you want to engage, how do you determine, as we said earlier, who truly has influence? What separates, what distinguishes prominence from influence? And those are the two key things that I think most interests struggle to do consistently and accurately. 
And Johnny, to that point, what, what problems or what mistakes do you commonly see actors in the political system make when trying to navigate these two questions? One challenge that a lot of political actors confront is viewing influencers or viewing influence, I should say, in isolation. And this emerges, especially when looking at the media, when, when, political, when companies, trade associations, issue advocacy groups are looking at the media and they see, aha, this columnist wrote on a particular topic and their column is widely circulated. This means they have tremendous influence. It may be the case that they have tremendous influence, but what's more interesting is that in most cases, that column reflects a network of individuals who are influencing that columnist. There is a whole chain of influence leading to the codification of an idea. And the mistake that's made is thinking that that individual determines their perspective in a vacuum on their own. When the reality is that Washington is a tribal network society, and for the most part, public voices will only endorse uh, positions that are consistent with their standing within their tribe. They cannot afford to defy their tribe. And we've spoken in previous episodes uh, on the importance of tribe. They have to preserve their credibility or the most effective preserve their credibility with their tribe, with their political community, while at the same time injecting innovation and creativity and moving the consensus of their tribe in a new direction that accounts for all of the changes and developments and challenges that have emerged in society. And so, for example, if you look at the debate on trade, the consensus that existed, that trade with the People's Republic of China was an unadulterated good, has totally imploded on itself. Some of the people who have been most influential in beginning to reshape the consensus on that particular issue, understand the interplay between their old positions and where the, where the system is headed and where they need to move. Jeremy, how does Johnny's point about tribalism and networks play out in the debate on policy within Washington? We see that a common mistake is for people to overemphasize structure and underemphasize ideological tribe. So people place a great deal of importance on former officials and often believe that a former official at a particular agency is well suited to influence the people who are currently at the agency. Sometimes that may be true, but it might not be. What's often more important is the ideological tribe. The ideological tribes are sometimes harder to define than identifying who a former official is. And so we understand why sometimes people gravitate towards a structural approach. It's easy to define. It's easy to put parameters around, whereas the ideological tribes are fluid, sometimes appear to be a little amorphous, but they're actually much more powerful. And so we've really focused on those. Uh, difficult as, as the challenge is, we really believe that those are where 
opinions really form and that's how we're able to help our clients most effectively. One prominent challenge in identifying ideological communities is that the surface level analysis frequently does not fully appreciate internecine disputes within communities. And internecine disputes going back to Cain and Abel tend to have a very disproportionately large effect on, on outcomes. If we look at the hipster antitrust community today, a lot of their positioning has been in opposition to the neoliberal consensus of the 1990s, which they identify not with Milton Friedman quoting Republicans, but with Democratic Leadership Council liberals associated with former President Bill Clinton. And so to understand hipster antitrust, you cannot say they are going to be positively disposed toward a, an emissary from your company, from your issue advocacy group, who held a you know, high-ranking position in the Clinton administration, because quite possibly that individual's ideological position is anathema to hipster antitrust. Given all these challenges, Jeremy, what's the solution? How can influence be identified and consistently measured and verified? The solution is to have a definition that can be applied in a data-driven manner. So that rather than weighing one anecdote against another anecdote or one person's experience against someone else's experience, there's some kind of definition that can be applied in a consistent, rigorous way at scale that helps us understand on a relative basis who is more or less influential or on what topics and how that changes with time. That's the solution and that's what we've been working on. So Jeremy, talk about now that you and the team have gathered tens of thousands, you said more than 100,000 reference citations, talk about that approach and talk about what we've learned. Let me describe the methodology of Barron's Influencer Analytics. We start by defining a pool of dozens to hundreds of different policymakers who we want to study. We then look at the individuals who those policymakers cite. We look at all public information. We look at any speeches they make, press releases they put out, books they've written, articles they write, social media posts, anything that's publicly available, and TV appearances as well, anything that's out there in the public domain. We gather thousands or tens of thousands of instances in which those policymakers mention outside individuals or organizations. We apply an algorithm which identifies the outside individuals who are mentioned most frequently, most consistently. And then we apply the same methodology. We look at who those influencers are citing. And that entails gathering another set of thousands or tens of thousands of citations. And then that reveals the influencers on the influencers. So Jeremy, what you're outlining is a process to determine who influences the influencers on the policymakers. So in, in shorthand, it's really second order influence. Yes. And so at the end of the day, you end up with a list of people who are sort of what we call the original content creators from whom information flows to influencers and ultimately 
to the policymakers who most rely on them to forge their opinions, to shape their opinions, to set policy. Jonathan, for example, we might find that a particular think tank scholar is mentioned frequently by policymakers, and then we would go off and identify who is influencing that think tank scholar. And so we would identify those second order influencers who may not have any direct relationship with the policymaker, but who are the original content creators. And Jeremy, what is the advantage of that approach? This approach is really powerful because the closer you get to where the ideas are being formed, the more successfully and efficiently you can affect outcomes that are downstream. Jeremy, people might think that there are hundreds or thousands of people who matter, genuinely matter on a given issue. What does the data show us on the size of the audience, the number of what we call super influencers who really are driving policy downstream through influencers and ultimately policymakers? We find that it's usually a few dozen people who are really most influential. Once you get beyond the top few dozen, it starts getting really patchy. You know, you start getting people who might get mentioned one week, but then go silent for a while. You know, it starts getting very patchy. So we're pretty confident that the top 20, 30, 40 are really the most influential. Again, it depends on the topic and it depends on the time frame, but it's a small number. And what's, re and what's remarkable is that because what you're describing, Jeremy, occurs at a subsurface level, right? It's not the column appearing in the Wall Street Journal, right? But it's layers beneath that. It is very likely to be overlooked. And people have difficulty identifying, Johnny, as you described, the tribal relationships, right? The, the, the strong intellectual, ideological, even theological associations that cause opinion to be self-reinforcing in a given community, ultimately tied to policymakers. I think one of the paradoxes of a democratic society, our democratic society, is that in the public square, for the most part, people do not feel comfortable citing themselves as an authority, even though they are free to, in a way unlike ever before in human history, they would prefer to reinforce their standing, which I previously called credibility, by citing someone else who has even more standing than they. And what that means is that they are looking for reinforcements they can point to. They are largely not generating ideas on their own. They are taking ideas that others have generated and, uh, and those others have generated because they have the credibility to generate ideas and disseminating them, broadcasting them through the public square. And I think that's one reason why we tend to find, not dispositively, but a greater percentage of academics among super influencers. And usually these are not the academics who appear with regularity on cable news. These are usually pretty obscure academics who are focused on their uh, scholarship because our society places, even, even though you know people like Richard Hofstadter decades ago said our society was 
anti-intellectual or there was a strong anti-intellectual trend. Academics have the kind of moral authority, the standing to generate ideas that your average CEO of a Fortune 500 company just does not have. And what influencer analytics does is trace those ideas from the academy and the other venues in which they are generated to the corporate executive or the policymaker. We've seen this with the current focus on environmental, social, and governance investing, ESG. This concept was really developed in more narrow ideological quarters and in the last few years through a variety of decisions by institutional investors and others has really come into full bloom. But it was not created within the Fortune 50. It migrated to the Fortune 50. And I think that's an example of how even people who have lots of financial resources and lots of media time and by many accounts, lots of standing don't feel totally that they can generate their own ideas as political actors in society and draw on ideas that have been birthed elsewhere. And I should clarify that there's nothing wrong with that. That's how society works. We're not, this is not a condemnation of policymakers and opinion leaders for taking the best ideas that others have come up with and disseminating them. On the contrary, I think it's, it's the strength of our society, but that does not mean that you have to identify the ideas with the policymaker articulating the idea. That's a lagging indicator. And the leading indicator is the idea generator upstream, to use the upstream downstream language of, of Jeremy. Jeremy and Johnny, one of the things that we talk a lot about is the distinction between public influence and private influence. It's important to appreciate that influencer analytics is very good at verifying influence. To be sure, there is a, there is a significant amount of private influence that does not manifest itself publicly. But what we find in political competition is that most organizations are able to reach parity on private influence. Right? Through their various sources, they're able to identify who is close with whom, how are those people recruited, and what you find is an arms race where you normally get to an equilibrium. Where there are differences in influence is really in this category of public, of going to the super influencers who are not as often engaged, who, as Johnny said, is uh, upstream of the policy consensus and engaging those folks at that level. So yes, organizations must be able to understand you know, who is the Eddie Jacobson uh, of our time, who has that private uh, unpublicized influence with a given decision maker, uh, and that happens every day. But the real advantage, I would say the real contest occurs understanding who are those super influencers, who are those original content creators from whom so much flows uh, ultimately manifesting itself in policy outcomes. And many, many of the competition scenarios that we see between different groups, Jonathan, relate to administrative law and procurement and executive actions that contain substantive arguments. The government, in many cases, the, the federal government, does not have the ability to say, you know, Joe told, uh, Joe told Bob 
this was the way it's going to be. And so we, as a federal agency, have decided to go in that direction. They have to enumerate their reasons for taking a particular action. And that is why in these competition scenarios, the public influence also matters more. In, in decisions where there's no public facing accountability, the government can do whatever it wants, but where there's a, an element of public accountability built in, there have to be public rationales and those public rationales are subject to debate and confrontation and rebuttal. Johnny and Jeremy, let's identify some of the use cases that we've seen in the scenarios we've worked on, starting with a lot of the work uh, we do with executives on trying to exert thought leadership and really have policymakers appreciate the challenges of a given business sector. Well, Jonathan, resources are, are always limited. Even if money were somehow to be infinite, people's time is limited and their focus is limited. And so we found that influencer analytics is a helpful way to identify priorities. And this can be applied in a government affairs setting. This can be applied in a public relations setting. This can be applied um, in support of corporate executives who are interfacing directly with the DC universe at certain times when they visit DC. It's really about prioritization. And it also speaks to, I think, Jeremy, trying to close or navigate what I'll call the business politics gap. Often business leaders have a set of very well-informed experiences. They're contending with a dynamic, contentious, often extremely competitive landscape. And by design, almost un unavoidably, it's very hard for policymakers to understand what business leaders confront. It's not to say that business leaders are smarter than politicians. Actually, they have different roles. They have different perspectives. And so it creates that, that business politics gap. And so to the extent that business leaders feel that there's an urgent priority to educate the political system on the reality of the challenges in their perspective, to your point, you have to prioritize. You have to start somewhere. Influencer analytics makes that process much more manageable and efficient. One other benefit of influencer analytics is that it enables DC-based government affairs personnel to forecast, anticipate, plan for intellectual trends that are underway. Most corporate government affairs offices are led by individuals who themselves were former congressional and executive branch staffers. And I think naturally there's a, there's a bias toward understanding those dynamics, but not necessarily spending as much time thinking through the broader trends in academic discussion, for example, of a particular policy area. So we think influencer analytics plays a role in, in helping those corporate leaders manage some of their potential blind spots. And it's not an academic question because ultimately those academic and intellectual trends manifest themselves right, in policy. Yeah. It's more complicated than real world versus ivory tower. There are a lot of ivory tower influences that are filtered into the political system and reshaped and become the idea du jour. It's very hard to keep track of those dynamics. And we think influencer analytics does a very good job 
showing executives those trends at work and how below the surface a conversation is being reshaped. Jeremy, talk about the realm of public relations. Well, it really goes back to this idea of credibility. There are certain people who have more credibility than others, depending on the topic, depending on the audience. And we have found that in PR, a particularly effective strategy is to engage with the authors and scholars who already have that credibility, rather than trying to create credibility. When a PR strategy is able to work with, with individuals who have strong credibility already, it can be very effective and easy. But to do that, you have to have strong confidence in who has the credibility in the first place. And that's where influencer analytics comes into the picture. I would encourage our listeners to navigate to our website, barronpa.com, and read the political risk brief that we published in advance of this podcast. In that brief, we constructed taxonomy of three types of influencers. There are more types than three, but those are the three we address. The categories are the constructive iconoclast, the technician, and the narrator. And the narrator in, in our analysis refers to a small class of journalists whose practice of journalism as a craft really harkens back to that post-World War II former war, war correspondent you know, community that really invested a lot in giving reporting an identity as a nonpartisan pro-consumer force. And although reporting in general and, and the media, broadly speaking, have become much more ideologically driven and much more polarized, there remain a small number of of uh, reporters who really, we think, harken back to this earlier time, and they disproportionately set the agenda on questions like energy policy and healthcare policy. And if you as a corporate government affairs executive can begin to have a dialogue with the sources that those reporters cite already consistently, regularly in their stories. You are going to be positioning your narrative uh, successfully going forward. And Johnny, talk a little bit about uh, trade associations and how they often struggle to support their members with critical insights and understanding the opinion landscape and the role of influencer analytics in helping those trade associations. So one of the challenges that trade associations face is member management. There's a, there's a balance that, that is struck between managing the demands of the members and educating and apprising the members of what's, what's going on, both conveying new information to the members and being the voice of the members before decision makers. One of the great things about influencer analytics is that it gives trade associations which have to cover an enormous amount of, of ground covering their, encompassing their member base, the ability to think broadly about the, the topics they, they care about. In addition, Johnny, and this applies not only to trade associations, but also I think the government relations uh, offices, it's to be able to communicate in the, in the former case to the member companies in the latter case to uh, executives 
the nature of the debate that's unfolding and the composition of that, that, that debate. What I mean is in the projects that we've done, when we identify super influencers, and we also look at the influencers and ultimately the policymakers, we can see where the conversation is taking place. Is it taking place among people who are center right or center left or in the center? And often, uh, whether it's trade association member companies or executives at major companies, they're frustrated by the lack of progress, often because they don't understand that the debate that they're trying to have is occurring within a universe that is fundamentally hostile. Right? So an example would be you have uh, executives who want a more you know, business-driven free market uh, approach by government, but the people who are dominating the conversation currently exist in a part of the political spectrum that is hostile to market-driven, business-driven solutions. And so by definition, the competition or the conversation is taking place right on a tilted playing field. And that's very hard to understand without insights into the nature of influence and who's driving the conversation. So influencer analytics equips folks at, you know, within GR offices, but also at trade associations to be able to educate their member companies or their executives on the challenge that's faced and what are the real solutions and why things are harder than they might seem on the surface. Thank you, Johnny and Jeremy, for a terrific conversation. I want to thank Dana Engelman for making these podcasts possible, Danielle Weinrich for excellent research, along with Robert Bellafiore and our producer, Noah. Thank you all, our audience, for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice, and we look forward to having you join us for a future episode of The Political Risk Brief.